Hello and welcome to episode 49 of When Life Gives You Lemons Go Vegan. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and in this podcast, I share people's incredible stories of recovery after adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based, vegan diet. And this week, I was very lucky to interview Victoria Moran from Main Street Vegan over in New York. And her story is really, it's been a theme. It's just been an accidental theme, but we've had a theme of people talking about food addiction and compulsive eating. And I do think that it's a really important theme because as most of us know, when we are carrying excess weight or when we are obese, you know, it does have a ripple effect. Well, it tends to have a ripple effect on our health overall as far as chronic disease, inflammation, heart disease, that kind of thing. So I do think it's really, really relevant considering that 70% of our population is currently overweight or obese. Victoria is talking about her journey in this week's episode with binge eating and overcoming binge eating. And it's it's a different perspective. And each week it is different. People have differing tips. And I like that it gives a space for people who are listening to say, you know what, I really like, you know, this person's this per- we have this person's tips on how they've worked to overcome their chronic il- their chronic sorry their compulsive eating or this person's tips really resonate with me and work with me and this week um Victoria's talking a lot about overeaters anonymous which i only learned about this year earlier this year when i was exploring this for my clients and for myself and thinking about what programs work and what what things what tools there are out there for people living with compulsive eating, binge eating, overeating, and disordered eating in general. And so Victoria's story is is wonderful. Her work is wonderful. Victoria has a website, MainStreetVegan.net. She has a Main Street Vegan podcast, which is on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher app. And she has Main Street Vegan Academy, which where she trains lifestyle coaches, vegan lifestyle coaches over in the States and six day program. And she's just incredible. So everything that she's written books, she's over at MainStreetVegan.net. So check her out. And I hope you really enjoyed this interview. And I hope that it has, it has more than just conversations about binge eating and overcoming compulsive eating. It has so much more. She is just so knowledgeable. She's been eating this way for 35 years and has maintained her weight for that long too. So I hope you enjoy her episode. Thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on the show. Let's get started. So hello, Victoria, and welcome to the show. Why, thank you so much. I love it that we're talking about lemons because I drink lemon water every morning. <laughs> Excellent. Me too. Me too. It's my first start to the day and some and lots of other water as well. <laughs> I was going to say, I've given a bit of an introduction, but if you wanted to just get right in and tell us a bit about your story, that would be wonderful. My dad was a physician and you'd think that that meant that I had a healthier start than most kids, but it was kind of the opposite. I was um, living in the Midwest of the United States, and then we're talking the 1950s, so we're going back some. And it, the very conventional idea was that everybody, children in particular, should be drinking lots and lots of milk. And in my case, it was skim milk because I was overweight from the time I was a really young child. 
And I think that it was the milk that was probably most contributing to the fact that I was never very healthy as a kid. And I thought maybe I just needed to drink more milk. I was very much uh, trying to find ways to fix myself. I remember once when I was nine, climbing up on uh, my dad's desk and getting into his bookcase and finding this big book that he'd had back in medical school. It was called uh, Alimentaris Humanus, which somehow I knew that meant nutrition. And I didn't understand it at all. It was full of biochemistry. But there was a chart in that book that was foods by calorie density. I know Dr. Joel Furman has done a chart like that for Whole Foods Markets in, in recent memory. But this was a really long time ago. And all the first foods on that list, I had no idea what they were. I didn't even know how to pronounce them. I thought I was seeing foods like Calais and Collard greens and arugula. None of this made any sense to me. And then I saw Swiss chard and I thought, oh, well, that must be in Switzerland. And then I saw mustard greens and thought, well, that has to be a typo because everybody knows mustard is yellow. But basically, what it was telling me was that dark leafy greens were the coolest foods there were. And I didn't really get into dark leafy greens until I was probably 40 years old, which was even after, um, several years after I had become vegan. So my life has been largely a quest. I did finally lose the weight when I became vegan at the age of 33. And that was really a combination of recovery for a long-standing binge eating disorder and then having the choice of what to eat. And I chose vegan and didn't really know that it was going to just be the answer that I had been looking for for 30 years. But that weight loss has stayed gone for 35 years, the 35 years that I have been vegan. And that's a great blessing in my life. Wow. That is that as Chef AJ was on the show last last week, well, this just the other, so it's just on Sunday, if you're listening to this, it's <laughs> just the episode before this episode. And um, she was talking about that the statistics are that around 98% of people are back at their original weight after they've adopted after they've started dieting or done a diet and lost weight they're back at their original weight within 2 years so the fact that you're you're, you're the 2% and the two only 2% of people maintain their their weight loss after 2 years so it's incredible that you've now been you know 35 years of sustaining your weight loss yeah, it's a great gift. And for me, it did need to come from two angles. It was the food, but it was first an inner change because I didn't just like to eat. I ate for a fix. I, I ate to fill what Blaise Pascal had called a God-shaped hole in every man that only God can fill. And if you don't like the word God, you can put any other word in there that has to do with meaning, something that, that can really take the place of any sort of addiction. So that for me was the first thing, 12-step recovery, just like the alcoholics and the addicts go through. And then what that gave me was the ability 
to choose the way of eating that I wanted. And what I had wanted for a long time was vegan. I had managed to be vegetarian, which was a wonderful thing because when I was binging, when I was just eating with wild abandon and I was a really low bottom compulsive eater. I, I didn't get to be, you know, 400 pounds or anything because I was always dieting in between. So I had, I, I thought of, of my body as like an accordion on any given day. It was either going to be, you know, one size or, or another, but the, the inner way that I dealt with food was just so, so sad. You know, I was a young woman and should have been having this lovely, life with all kinds of adventures, but there was this awful, awful um, inability to do that because of, of this, what I consider this, this disease of, of needing to eat for a fix. And then when that was being taken care of, as I was literally learning how to live in Overeaters Anonymous, I was finally able to be vegan, which I had tried to do for many years and always fell off the wagon, as it were. Now, at that time, we're talking 1983 when this finally happened, we didn't know about whole foods plant-based. This was before Dean Ornish had done his heart disease study. This was before Dr. Esselstyn or any of that. But we did know some things, even back then, as early as 1960, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, there had been an editorial that stated that a pure vegetarian diet could relieve 90% of the thromboembolic disease, in other words, heart disease, and 97% of the coronary embolisms, in other words, heart attacks, that, that doctors see. Now, this was 1960, <laughs> before uh, a whole lot was known. And what we, what we did know was that the reason that vegans tended to have so much success at that time with, with weight loss, with staving off heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and these kinds of things, was that we weren't getting saturated fat from animal foods. And then, of course, we were avoiding tropical oils the palm oil, coconut oil, and, and cocoa butter. And at the time, nobody in the Western world ate those foods anyway. You couldn't walk into a grocery store or a health food store and buy coconut oil. There was other bad stuff. I mean, we didn't know about trans fats and margarine and things like that. But in terms of like coconut oil, it just was not there. And so it's really interesting that even before we knew what we know now, the basics were there. The bones of this thing existed that when you get rid of the animal foods and the processed foods with the fake fats and the trans fats, that's going to take you really far. And now we know even more. We're so lucky. Mm, we are so lucky. And it just keep, we keep getting more and more and more um, research and evidence and information that just... It helps so much, especially when you're dealing with compulsive eating, because I've found in my own journey with it that possibly like you, that education is, it's been, it's a source of power when you're trying to, when you feel so powerless against food addiction. Yeah, it, it's really true. And, and there are many aspects to it. And I think that's why 
there's a, a contingent, you know, within the vegan world that just says, forget it. You know, I, I'm going to have the body that I have. I'm going to be proud of the body that I have. And I think this is very valid. And I think if somebody has just been, you know, so beaten up over this thing, is just so weary about it that they just don't want to deal with it, you know, that is really valid. And I don't think anyone should determine for someone else what they should do with their own body. I just want to be here to offer that for anyone who really does want to give it one more shot, I can tell you that I I was so ill with this thing that I would take, I remember once I, I had a temporary job that I would go in after the day shift and I was pretty much by myself trying to uh, turn their their paper filing system over into what would be computerized back in the day. And they had had a party there and they had cake and the, the frosting was stuck to the cardboard, you know, the way cakes sometimes come from bakeries. And I pulled that out of the trash cans so that I could eat it. I mean, this is this can get to a very serious point. And, and in my case, it did. And yet the freedom that can come when you walk away from that is, is absolutely astounding. And again, I'm not saying that everybody who's carrying extra weight did things like that. That's my story. That's nobody else's story. But if, if I can come from that to 35 years of freedom without dieting or worrying about it, um, you know, pretty much anything can happen for anybody. <laughs> it's such a good way to, um, to think of it. And I think that, uh, people who are listening, who are, because you know, I even I I said to my my son's third third birthday cake. He got this beautiful cake from a bakery, um, a vegan bakery called Mister Nice Guys. That my um, it was not a healthy cake at all. But he he wanted a cake like his friends had a fun looking birthday cake rather than just one that I <laughs> made. So my brother, his uncle, got him a fun space cake because he wanted a space cake. And so he got this cake and it was bright blue and pink. And I remember he had like one piece because he was busy playing. But I I could not – a friend of mine and I, we could not stop eating the, the bright, crazy icing and the cake. And I was thinking I was, I was mostly whole food. I was, I was a whole food plant-based based vegan, but I was a compulsive eater. And so and this when this cake came into the house out of out of the – blue <laughs> blue and pink out of the blue cake came in I could not stop myself I had to throw it in the bin and I wanted to eat it out of the bin like I was desperate for this crazy cake um so I really resonates with me what you're saying and I think lots of people can resonate with like wanting to eat out of the bin or eating out of the bin or you know being desperate desperate the sense of urgency and desperation for those types of foods those refined sugar, fats, salt, oil, you know, those types of foods. Yeah, they're, they're very concentrated. Mm. You know, um, I think that if somebody is a serious compulsive eater, if, if you were locked in a room and there was nothing there but apples and celery and spinach, <laughs> you could binge on that. You know, if that, if in a pinch, if that's all that there is and you really just needed 
the ritual of the food in the mouth, chewing, swallowing, feeling full, you could do it. But that would be your last choice. You know, <laughs> we always want to, to binge on these really concentrated, stimulating sorts of foods. And for me, one of the biggies was cheese. And that was always so difficult. Cheese, yogurt, cottage cheese, a lot of the things that were on all the diets that were supposed to be good. And so I would, when I was lacto-vegetarian, you know, I would say, okay, I'm going to get my act together now and I'm going to go out and I'd get all these cheesy kinds of products along with the vegetables and the fruits and whatever. And then I would just eat all the cheesy stuff, <laughs> you know, leave the vegetables and the fruits because that cheese with, with that addictive morphin component with the, the high salt, the high fat really, really called to me. And I did have a hard time back then. And I think some people do even now because this, this other way of looking at food continues to be our kind of uh, competition philosophically in, in the health range. Thank goodness we've got the ethical part and the environmental part on our side too. But when it just comes to food and health and weight and things like that, back in the day and now, there have always been that other way of looking at things, that high-protein, low-carbohydrate way. And some people do that successfully on the short run. It's very appealing to people because we do like fat and, and we do like, you know, the cheese and, and the meats and those kinds of foods until we come to see what's wrong with them on so many levels, ethically as, as well as physiologically. And yet... The, the popular press, the world at large, Dr. Oz, all these people. It, it's so hard, I think, for somebody to be able to warm to this way of looking at food because they've been told for so long, oh, carbohydrates will kill you and you can't possibly lose weight on all those carbs. And ooh, I know a vegan and she gained weight. And of course, nowadays, there's a problem that we didn't have back in the 80s. And that is that you can be vegan and still have all these kinds of foods like you talked about with the cake. I mean, on the one hand, it's great that a three-year-old can have a cake like his friends have. And, and that's wonderful. And I'm so happy that people have figured out how to do that in a vegan way. But on the other hand, we have to have as much discernment as omnivores, which uh, there was a time when we didn't. I mean, when I finally went vegan, I mean, we had potato chips and soda, but pretty much, you know, that was it in yeah. terms of junk food. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. My, my son since then, that was our one and only one of those cakes because I was like, this is actually terrible for you. But but I agree with you. I went to World Vegan Day here in Mel in Australia, in Melbourne, and it's not, I love World Vegan Day. I'm not blaming it. All, all the vegan, all the vegan days and festivals, they're so beautiful and they're great at – attracting omnivores who want who would love to make the switch for ethical reasons i love that but um you're right you're walking around and you're trying to find you know low, low fat whole food food foods to eat that aren't highly highly processed or highly refined or high in salt and fat and sugar and it can be really difficult to find them or if not sometimes impossible <laughs> yeah it's the hardest place often um to find 
really healthy food. And I completely agree with you. I want the whole world to be vegan. Mm. And I don't care what kind of vegan people are. Exactly. Me too. So I love that those things exist. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like what you The animals to- are grateful. Absolutely. Mm. And, and the planet and, yes. and all the rest. Yes. It, it's just when you know how to feel really good, you kind of feel sorry for people who... <laughs> <laughs> who maybe don't, or, you know, maybe they do. I think sometimes, you know, if you're young, if, if you're not prone to some of these kinds of problems, you know, you can really have a heyday with some of those richer foods. I just think it's important to just, you know, pay attention. And if, if things kind of seem uh, like they're not as happy as they were before and you want to move more in the whole food plant-based, what happens is it's just as delicious. I think this is is one of the, the myths that, oh my goodness, you know, I've already given up eggs and cheese and dairy and whatever. And what and now you're you're wanting me to not have vegan donuts and not have vegan ice cream. It's like, well, you have whatever you want, except, oh my gosh, how absolutely incredibly delicious is you know, the roasted kale salad that I get here in New York City at Kendall Cafe West, or, you know, you really come to to change what's enticing. It's true. It's true. And I think that change, I think a lot of that comes when you move away from the foods that feed the pathogenic bacteria in our in our intestines as well you know i think when you start eating more plant foods you start to your cravings start to change not just because of your of your taste buds but also because you're creating a a happier environment inside your microbiome absolutely and that's something that we didn't know about until fairly recently and it answers so many questions It's like, oh my goodness, you are creating an internal environment for satisfaction, contentment, and and physiological happiness. That is so cool. So cool. I I find it so fascinating. It's amazing. And I think that so many people, I had no awareness of this until just, well, more and more I'm learning about it, but only just very recently, I only just discovered all this microbiome stuff in the last few years. And it just changes the way you think about what you're putting into your mouth. Are you feed, I said to my son, are we feeding the good guys or the bad guys? <laughs> well, that's just it. I know um, I, I run Main Street Vegan Academy, which is a program that trains vegan lifestyle coaches. And it's so wonderful because I've done it now 22 times <laughs> since I'm always here. But one of our instructors, Dr. Robert Ostfeld, is a, a cardiologist here in New York City. And he always cites a study that was done where they gave a group of omnivores and a group of vegans a steak. And I always think, ooh, those vegans must really, really be dedicated to the cause <laughs> if they would eat a steak. But what the study showed was that when the omnivores ate the steak, their guts created high levels of a substance called TMAO, which is very damaging and leads to heart disease and other things that you don't want. The vegans, even in response to eating the one steak, did not have that happen because over their time of being vegan, they had developed a different gut microbiome. So even when the offending substance entered in, they were able to fight it off. 
And I don't know if there was a follow-up to see how long that lasted. I don't know how many steaks they could have eaten before developing the TMAO. But it's really interesting how when the body is given the food that it understands, it responds with protection for us. It's really, really fascinating. Sorry, I missed the doctor's name at the start because I was too busy. I was listening and I ah, missed the doctor's name. Dr. Ostfeld. O s t f e l d. A wonderful young man, a, a great uh, devotee of uh, Dr. Campbell and 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 Dr. Esselstyn, and he has done something amazing uh, here in New York, at uh, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. He has started a cardiac wellness program. And the area of the Bronx that he's in tends to be a low-income area, and people can come on a Saturday for a free program where after having the medical assessment and all prior to this, they get the, the lectures, the training, the literature, cooking classes, uh, a shared lunch, so that it's not just, okay, here, go, go do a whole food plant-based diet when most people have no idea what that is. Yeah. So they're actually, you know, taught how to do that. And, and he has great stories. Like one of his patients was a woman, I think she was in her 70s, and she had very severe cardiac disease, but she didn't want dress and surgery. So she did the whole food plan, based food plan, and she was doing just great. And then he didn't hear from her for a couple of months and got a call from another hospital that she was going in for bypass surgery. And he was just stunned because the last he had heard, she'd been doing so well. And then when he researched what was going on, it was that she lived part of the time with one side of the family and part of the time with another side of the family. And when she originally was advised to do the whole food plant-based diet, she was with the side of the family that thought it was a great idea and they wanted to do it too. And they were willing to learn how to cook differently and it was all great. But then when she went to live with the other side of the family, they had no interest in it. It was very hard for her to continue. And that was what led her to this horrible, invasive, life-saving perhaps, but still not something that you want kind of surgery. Mm, wow. It's actually, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, because I think that this is, this is a point, a contention point for lots of people that their families don't support them when they want to make this switch. And their friends, you know, they find they're worried about how their friends are going to view it and their families don't support them or their partners. So I was going to ask you how you, as I know that, you know, with your doing the 12 steps, how did you find the pushback from family when you wanted to take on this lifestyle? I got very little pushback from family, but interestingly enough, when you mentioned the 12 steps, I did get some pushback from people in the 12-step community because just like people anywhere, we're all schooled by the same media, the same mass information the same, oh, don't eat any carbs <laughs> kind of messages. And so I, I did get some pushback there. But what happened for me was I was so sure about this. I was by that time at the point, I didn't need anybody's approval. I, I just knew that I was going to do it. 
So at the time um, that I finally um, went vegan, uh, I was married and or I, I and my husband, we'd already tried to be vegan, you know, many times. And he was pretty much sticking with it. I was the one who would binge or who would go on one of these high protein diets, you know, and, and get off the wagon. So he was cool with it. Now, it is interesting that at the time, it was so unusual that somehow we were living in a small town, a suburb of Chicago, and somebody from the newspaper got wind of the fact that there was this vegan family living in Wheaton with a baby. So the newspaper came and did an article about us. And, you know, nice story, very positive, nice pictures and all of that. And the next day, there's a knock on my door, and it's a woman from Children and Family Services coming to make sure that my daughter was getting the right kind of food. And it was pretty scary because I had actually heard at that time of one family who had had a child removed from the home because there was no milk in their refrigerator. But this woman was cool. And I was very, um, you know, educated. I mean, I I already knew a lot because I'd been vegetarian for a long time and I'd been writing for the vegetarian press and that. So, you know, I could cite the studies that we had at that time. And, and and, you know, I, I knew chapter and verse. And of course, you know, my daughter was healthy and we had lots of fruits and vegetables in the refrigerator and that's always impressive. But it, it was you know, not, not the easiest time to do this. And I remember my mother, bless her heart. I think she thought it was probably stupid, but she knew better than to try to argue with me. And then years later, this was, you know, before she died, probably 20 years after I had gone vegan, she said, you know, we used to think you were crazy doing that yoga and eating those beans. But now, (laughs) people's doctors tell them to do that. And I thought, you know, it took a while, but I have been vindicated by my mother's internist. (laughs) And I think it just depends on, you know, where you are. If you live in an area where there's a lot of farming and you make this decision, you know, you seem to be a threat to people's livelihood. So that's, you know, much more serious than, you know, if you do it in your urban office and most of the other people there are doing paleo, you know, then it's just more of an opinion thing. So you have to really be very diplomatic because as much as we get started on this and we're just so convinced that this is the way the world has to go, how come everybody can't see this, but they can't? And so, you know, you just have to be tolerant and stick to your guns. And I think also you talked about education. I think that the more that you know, not so much to argue with people, but just to have an answer when they say, where do you get your fill in the blank? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I agree. Sometimes I found whenever I have, whenever I make a a lifestyle choice that's outside of the box which I tend to much to my family's (laughs) 
horror a lot of the time. I I found that I just get it put in my notes. I start to formulate, if just from my own peace of mind, all the answers to the questions that I know I'm going to get asked or that I do get asked. <laughs> I just have a big re- – and even often once I've just written it down, no one ever asks. It's like, it's like it puts it out there that she has an answer. Don't bother asking her. But, yeah, I find that it gives me peace of mind and comfort and I have it there and I know that if I get challenged that I can say, look, this is this article, this is this, this is this diet, you know, this is this expert or this is a statistic or whatever it is. And I feel prepared and ready and sure of myself rather than feeling when you first when you, when you first go vegan, especially if you've got kids and you're thinking, oh my gosh, am I making the right choice? Like I'm just doing it for the animals and I don't know about the nutrition. The more I was informed, the calmer I felt in my decision. Yes. And we do have history now. I remember going to the UK in 1981. So I wasn't even completely vegan. I was trying to be vegan. But I had a fellowship from college and I went there to study vegans and that resulted in my first book. And I think from the best I can figure out, it was the first book on vegan philosophy and practice ever to come from a real publisher. It was called Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. And when I went there, I met some of these incredible people who had been in the vegan movement in the 1940s. And they really didn't know what was going to happen. There had been a few people. There was this Scottish, I guess you would call him sort of a prototype hippie, but he was from the early part of the 20th century. His name was Dugald Semple. And he was one of these back-to-the-land types. And he decided that he was going to give up all animal products and processed foods and caffeine and just live simply, and and it worked very well for him. So they knew that one person at least had done this and and not died, but they but they didn't have you know any kind of statistics or any sort of cultures who had done this. And I remember this one woman, Kathleen Janaway, who was at that time secretary of the Vegan Society, said to me, "We didn't know if our bones would disintegrate." Or if we perish in a fortnight, we did this out of pure disinterested compassion. And because they didn't know, and because they knew that they had to do whatever they could figure out to be healthy, because otherwise nobody would ever be vegan. So the health thing was part of veganism from the very beginning. And the very first definition of veganism said, you know, that we don't eat foods from the animal kingdom and and we live on the wholesome products of the plant world. And so this wholesome was in there from the very start. And I think a lot of people now are, you know, they don't like that. It's like, no, veganism is about the animals. It doesn't have anything to do with health. But it does have to do with health. Because if there is some kind of mass die-off of vegans because we're doing everything wrong, that's not going to help the animals. So it, it really does go hand in glove and always has. Oh, wow, Victoria. I'd never heard that before. And I often think because, because, because you know, vegans bless us, but we can be in argument. 
I think it's human race because I think people often think that vegans are argumentative and hate their groups are full of anger and rage and hateful and divisiveness. But I, I think that that's pretty much everything on social media these days. <laughs> I don't think it's exclusive to veganism as at all. I do, you do hear, you know, health vegan. Vegans, people who are vegan for for health reasons, do a disservice to the animal rights movement, and and I and I think that's true if we're if we're not if we're plant based and we're only doing it for our health and not not at all for our ethics for the animals and for the planet. But I mean, if we're doing it for both and we're aware of both, it it only can help the movement because because of thriving vegans. Like you say, you know, if you want to. Be an adv- you want to be an advertisement for the movement, not someone to say, you know, I've got I'm vegan, but I'm also chronically unwell and really sick because I don't have a nutritious, wholesome diet. And and, and you're so right. And it also gets really complicated because it's not a panacea. You know, this is Earth, and there are all sorts of things that affect our bodies besides what we eat. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. We've got radiation and pollution and DDT left in the atmosphere long after DDT was banned in in most countries. There are all sorts of of genetic things. There are subclinical viruses. I mean, so the idea that, like, I have known vegans who have gotten sick, cancer or some other disease, God bless them, and they don't even want to tell people. They don't even want to reach out for support because they feel that somehow getting sick is defying the cause. And I can say, you know, now being in my 60s, it's like, you know what, people get sick, you know, and it's not perfect, but it's like, hedge your bets. It's sort of like um, saving money, you know, for your retirement. And it is possible that you could invest in something that goes belly up. But if you don't invest in anything, you're going to wind up old with no money. So we do the best we can with our health and, you know, and and we take what comes. So it's just like, we're not all going to look like some kind of, of cover model on the sports illustrated swimsuit issue. And, and that's not the goal. The goal is to be vital, vibrant people and they say in, in 12 steps, if you have something that somebody else wants, they're going to do what you did to get it. And I think that so applies to veganism, that people are selfish. Most people are not walking around thinking, what can I do today for non-human animals? I mean, most people aren't even walking around thinking, what can I do for other humans? They're thinking about themselves, their health, their money, their family, their relationships, and so if you can introduce this in a way that has something for them in it, we're just going to do a lot better on the PR front. That is such a good point. And I think it's something that, yeah, it's a really, really good way of looking at it and a way of thinking about how to reach more people through selflessness yeah. and giving. <laughs> it, well, it's just that people are attracted to different things. We used to have a a lovely young man, uh, Michael Dudell, who taught for Main Street Vegan Academy before he moved away. He became a big business guy. He wrote the Shark Tank TV show's business book. But he would always say that when when somebody asks about your veganism and you tell them 
about the trifecta. You tell them about the animals, about the health, and about the environment just very briefly, and you see what kind of response you get to each one of those. So when you mention the animal suffering, if the person just looks like, oh my God, I didn't know that, if they just look hurt, then you know that this is someone who has a heart already for animals, and you're going to get them on that part. But if you talk about, you know, the health or, you know, you used to be on cholesterol medication and now you're not, and they lean in a little closer and that's really interesting to them, then that's what you take. Or the same with the environment. Not everybody is going to be interested in all these things, but they're so different that most people are going to be interested in one and you go with that. Yes. Yes. I love that. That's such a good way of thinking about it. And, and you notice when they're not interested, like often when I talk about the health, um, <laughs> some people will just close, you can them just close off and be thinking, you can tell that they're thinking, I don't care. <laughs> I don't yeah, care. yeah. Let me just and, eat and my that, cheese plate. <laughs> yeah. Shush. Well, that changes, you know, when, when you start talking to people in my age group and older, they are really interested in the health, but not necessarily our version of the health. You know, they're like, well, you know, I go to my doctor and I haven't had carbohydrates. I mean, I had dinner and this was a a young guy, but a young guy in the health movement a few weeks ago. And we we were at a vegan restaurant and, you know, he ordered and I ordered and, and he just said, you know, the worst thing that has ever been perpetrated on the population is this low fat diet. And you believe that anybody ever thought that was good? And I think my jaw fell to the table. (sighs) And I know that he was talking about that thing in the 1980s where people ate Snackwell cookies and, you know, stuff like that. Not the whole, not the whole picture. and margarine. Yeah. So some people were going to reach and some people were not. I think the best thing we can do is be healthy and be happy and live an aspirational life. Yes. And what have been the things, back to you for a second, because you've had a big, you know, it's been it's 35 years ago. And I think for me, it's been 10 years since I, I've i been symptom and relapse free from multiple sclerosis. But for you, with your food addiction and your binge eating, it's been 35 years. So it's easy. it becomes easy to just think of it as, oh, yeah, that was that. <laughs> that was then. And I, you kind of can flit over it like it was – we get so used to telling that story that it, it doesn't, doesn't have the same impact on us as it does to other people who are hearing it for the first time. And I think I'd love to hear more about those early days when you were going from being, you know, in the the thick of your compulsive eating, those early days, like how how was the transition for you? How how did you how did you go with that? Well, the one day at a time aspect that I learned in twelve steps was so important because my whole life had been binging or dieting. It was always you have to lose ever you know so much weight before the wedding or before the vacation or whatever it was. I was always looking out into some future and it just never worked. So what I started to do was just eat reasonably for today. And it didn't matter what was scheduled for next week or next month. 
I lived, as um, the psychiatrist Maxwell Maltz talked about, in daytight compartments. And so all I needed to do was eat for that day. Now, another thing that I do, and this is not for everybody, I know a lot of people do really well with the grazing, but for me as a compulsive eater, I ate and I continue to eat three meals a day. And that was really a godsend for me because as somebody who was stimulated by food, like I could just be living my life and being involved in work or whatever, not thinking about food at all. And then somebody would say, you want, you want a cookie? And it's like, whoa, then all I could think about was cookies. And so for me, the three meals a day was such a blissful blessing because if you only start three times a day, you only have to stop three times a day. And the world is set up for that. You know, you, you go on vacation and you're in a bed and breakfast or you get a job and the boss has to give you a lunch hour or, or you're interested in, you know, a person and you want them to ask you out to dinner or you ask them out to dinner. It's just, it's how we do things. And so that helped me. And then during the time between meals, I learned how to live. And I think always before that, it was always so much about food and what am I going to eat and what am I going to eat next and all that. And so to just know that for the hours between breakfast and lunch, the hours between lunch and dinner, the hours between dinner and bedtime, I was going to figure out how to have a productive life on earth. So I learned, for example, to meditate, which is a great blessing in terms of health as well as calmness and courage and, and how to react to life. Um, I, I got involved in animal rights in uh, kind of the natural parenting world at that time. And, you know, when I wasn't hiding away eating, there was a whole world out there to become a part of. And I think also I learned how to sit with feelings because one of the things for me at least as a binge eater was discomfort had to be erased to the degree that it could be erased with food. And so if I was uncomfortable, if I had anxiety, if I wanted to procrastinate, if I was afraid, if I was angry, I would just stick some food in there to kind of shove it down. But it was, it never lasted. It, it, and I think too, food is, is a kind of terrible addiction because it doesn't have a half-life where if, if you drink, you at least get drunk. You know, if you take drugs, you at least get high. But with, with food, you don't get anything except stuffed. And then you just have to push it on through and, and eat some more. So, so that was good for me. And there were some hard times. I mean, there's absolutely no, no question about it. I remember one morning I just, so I wanted, I was ready for lunch. It was about 1045. I just needed to eat. And so I just put the baby in the car seat in the car and we went driving and we drove until noon. And, you know, then I had my regular lunch and it was all fine. 
And I know that's extreme for most people. Most people, you know, wouldn't even understand that. But for me, coming from this this binging pattern that had gone on for decades, it was just what I needed to do. And one thing that's so great about the one day at a time is you do what you need to do in that day. And then some other days, it's all easy. You know, you don't need to do anything heroic. You just live and eat and life is good. Mm. I don't think many people who are listening may, I don't know if, well, I don't know if everyone will have heard of the Overeaters Anonymous 12-step program. So if you wanted to explain it a little bit um, to people who haven't um, been to AA or may not have heard of it, maybe people might benefit from listening to your experience with. Well, all the 12-step programs grew from Alcoholics Anonymous, which started in 1935 when a New York stockbroker and a very low-bottom drunk named Bill Wilson was in a hospital sobering up and he had a spiritual experience. I mean, he literally had this sense of knowing what he needed to do to stay sober forever. And from that, he developed these 12 steps, which are really about inner change. They're, they're very spiritual. They're not religious. And so anybody of any religion or no religion can use them. But it's an idea of coming to see that in the case of an addiction, this is just not anybody who wants to change their diet or whatever, but in the case of an addiction, we reach the point where we're powerless over the substance and we need to draw on a higher power, however an individual um, interprets that. And then there's a process of, of cleaning up the past because, you know, guilt and all that big problem <laughs> and cause people to do things that they don't want to do. And then making amends to people that we had harmed, um, uh, learning uh, prayer and meditation as a way to connect with this power greater than ourselves, uh, and then carrying the message to those who could be helped. And it's, it's very individual and, and people can adapt these steps to their own lives, to their own worldview. And I think that's why it's been so successful for so many millions of people for so long, because it isn't, okay, here you go. This is what you're supposed to believe now. No, you believe whatever you believe. Just apply these principles within your own worldview and that's going to help you not have to indulge in your addiction any longer. And that certainly was the case for me. Now, it's interesting with food that unlike alcohol, unlike drugs, we do need to eat. But, you know, the truth is alcoholics still drink. They just don't drink alcohol. And so for me as a compulsive eater, I still eat, but I eat foods that don't make me crazy and, um, and, and foods that have their own kind of shut off mechanism. You know, when I think about foods like pizza or ice cream, uh, you know, you can just eat them forever. 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 (laughs) That says, you know, enough, you know, you have to kind of 
set, you know, like, okay, I'm going to have two slices or whatever. And then it's like, oh, but I really want another one. So the foods that I eat are really delicious. I mean, they're just exquisitely delectable. And yet it's not like, oh, wow, I need another blueberry smoothie. It's like, no, I had a blueberry smoothie and it was really good. And now I want to go out and see what's happening in my life today. Check the calendar. Who am I going to see today? What work do I have to do today? Do I going to go to the gym this morning? It's it's just a, a very open way of looking at life. And so many people think, well, that's a lot of responsibility to put on food, but it's just the way it works. You start eating food with life force energy and you have more life force energy. Exactly. And I think as, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone, but, and I always talk about Andrew Taylor in this podcast, but what you're saying and what I've experienced and definitely what Andrew has experienced and what he says when he says, you know, make your food boring, make your life interesting. I know that's a, uh-huh. bit, <laughs> it's a bit simple. But what you're saying, you know, what it means is, you know, eat, you know eat, simplifying your food makes creates room as well to make your life interesting, to focus. When you have solid food rules, whole plant foods, low-fat whole plant foods, and you have them in place in three meals a day, it gives you space in your mind. Like, you know, I've done a few fasts as well. And when I was fasting, the first thing I noticed, even though I wouldn't recommend fasting to everyone, but I was just doing a, a three-day fast um, about a year ago, and I, I just noticed that all of a sudden I felt free of thinking about food just for a moment, you know, it just felt so peaceful. And once I became, started eating three meals a day, like, like, like you're talking about and just cleared up the rest of the space to know exactly, had my meal prep done, knew exactly what I was eating in those three meals. I felt like I wasn't in prison anymore, (laughs) in prison to food. It's very freeing. And I think so much of, of, we're talking about 21st century problems for, for the history of humans, just finding enough food to survive was pretty much what life was about. And I, you know, we look at, at animals. I mean, I see squirrels and they'll play sometimes, but most of the time they're looking for nuts to bury Mm -hmm. or dig up or whatever it is. It's really this, um, process of life is getting enough food And now we are in a time when most people have too much food. And it's just a different way of of responding. And and it's such a blessing. We don't have to worry about seeking out food. So we can do so much more in terms of creativity, in terms of personal growth. It's really thrilling. It is, it is. And I think that it's a it's a it's a double edged kind of double edged sword. The right way of saying this, like it's so wonderful yeah. on the one hand that we have that abundance of food in most in in most you know across the world in so many different places now, but on the downside, it, there's so much of that calorie high calorie dense food readily available to us. And as you as you know, and Doug Lyle talks about it in his book with um Alan Goldhammer, Doctor Alan Goldhammer, the the pleasure trap that those foods, you know, we're biologically designed to go after the most calorie dense foods in our environment. And unfortunately, having a McDonald's and having yeah, Hungry Jacks on every single corner means that 
at, we, you know, we're wired to 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 crave and to want those foods, which is which is the downside. But it also, I, I I'm mentioning it because it is. I think a lot of people feel like they need to rely on their willpower alone to overcome when, when they're overweight or when they're trying to lose weight, and there are so many different factors that go against people's ability to rely on willpower alone, such as that. Right. And and I think you can also get to a point, I know I got to a point where the willpower just wasn't there anymore. There was a time in my life when I was a really good dieter, I could diet, I could fast, I could do all these things. And then it got to the point where, you know, it would last until noon if I was lucky. And I think another thing about the food, and when you were talking about the food at the vegan festivals and things like that, vegan entrepreneurism is one of the most exciting and wonderful things that there is out there. It's absolutely thrilling. And I think it's changing the world in so many great ways. When that entrepreneurial spirit turns to food, it's difficult to keep it in the whole food, plant-based, low-fat arena. Because foods as they come are supremely tasty. I remember once after a fast, having a piece of raw cauliflower and having to spit it out, I thought somebody had soaked it in in salt water. I mean, it was so salty, but that's just because it's a vegetable and it has a lot of mineral salts in it. In ordinary life, not having, you know, recently fasted, it's just cauliflower and it tastes like what it tastes like. But when you try to make, turn these foods into something with shelf life and something with commercial viability, it's very difficult. I knew a couple of young men here in New York several years ago who wanted to do a food company of whole food, plant-based, no oil, sugar, or salt kinds of packaged foods. And I was part of the taste testing group. And it was really interesting. One of their products was a fruit roll. And that was really good because it was just dried fruit (laughs) rolled up. That was great because it actually took, you know, the sweetness and, you know, removing the water, it made it even sweeter and it was wonderful. And then they did a kind of oil-free granola, which was not great. There isn't an oil-free granola now. I don't know if you have it in Australia, but over here it's the Engine 2 Rip Esselstyn's. I've um, heard it's really great, but I haven't we haven't got it here. Yeah, it's it's really good. But you know, th- these people it was, you know, it was okay, it was fun. But then as we got into things like crackers, it was like I wonder if the box these come in would taste better. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. when you start trying to preserve something so that it's going to last on a shelf for weeks or months. The food industry, I don't think is just out there to make everybody sick. They want to make a profit. And so they pump in more fat, salt, and sugar just so that this lifeless food tastes like something. So I've learned a lot from the raw food people. I'm not a raw food person myself. And I know that very often if somebody's trying to be all raw, they end up with uh, too much fat just trying, you know, to get um, more calories. And yet I have learned so much from that movement in terms of, of this life 
force and of using whole foods. Like the only dessert I will ever make these days is a raw dessert because it's made from actual fruits and, and some nuts and some real food that comes from nature. And then a little bit of it is very satisfying and there's nothing refined and processed there. And so you get this sense that you ate. And with these other foods, it's sort of like you can chew and swallow for hours and hours, but you still just never feel like you were nourished. That's really, really, um, really, really true. I, I, I haven't thought about it like that before, but I, I, I know that when I eat any kind of vegan dessert, I can eat it endless i love desserts and i can eat endless amounts of them but i do find that with a raw dessert it is it's like they can be quite heavy with the amount of nuts so i normally avoid them at all costs but you do feel like you're getting if you have the ones that are lighter and lower in nuts you do feel like you're not you're nourishing yourself rather than just eating an endless amount of cake yeah well one of the things that i will make is the um raw chocolate cake in Jennifer Cornbleed's book, Raw Food Made Easy for One or Two People. And, you know, you kind of, the the semantic thing gets a little weird because, you know, when we think cake, we think of that cake like your son had for his third birthday. (laughs) And this is a little thing that fits on a saucer. And, you know, it's maybe an inch high or something like that. But when you slice it, a teeny tiny little sliver is like, whoa, I had dessert. Where, you know, it's just a different different mindset. And I think, you know, the, the body responds differently as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, I really... I really love all of the new flavors and things that are coming out of um, in raw food desserts and the creativity. I think that it was when I first went vegan, I found the desserts were so boring and there wasn't very many around. This was like 10, when I first heard about, thought about going vegan for multiple sclerosis, it was in 2004. So not as long as you, (laughs) but it was still pretty, pretty basic. And now there's just so many ways that you can have even nourishing whole food, plant-based desserts, which, which, which are satisfying as well as that you feel like you're getting a treat. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think that's the other thing, you know, the treat, the idea, of course, you're going to have some kind of cake for a birthday party, you know, uh, Christmas time, there are certain traditional things that you just really feel lacking. If you didn't have a little bit of some of that stuff made in a whole food plant based way. But the idea that we're supposed to have them all the time, you know, The kind of, you know, little, like in my generation, it was Hostess cupcakes or Twinkies in the lunchbox. You know, if you didn't have little cupcakes in your lunchbox, it was like your parents didn't love you anymore. Uh, So that's what I think we're getting away from. I mean, whenever I see children on the subway in New York eating fresh fruit, I always think, you've got really good parents and things are changing. Yeah, I did a teaching round a couple of years ago. I was doing it, my teaching degree, post grad master's degree. I was in the like just walking from my off my classroom to the staff room, and I saw a young girl 
eating a red capsicum or a red pepper, you say, you know. In yes. in the playground, she was just munching a whole capsicum, and I thought, "Holy cow!" I was yeah, when I was a kid. Cute. If I saw that, I would think that was the most bizarre thing in the whole wide world. And she just ate it, chatting to her friends, just eating a whole capsicum, and I was blown away. Her parents are nailing it. <laughs> yeah, totally. My son wouldn't do that, and I've been, you know, he's been raised vegan. I think he would munch a whole capsicum. But that was that's goals, goals for me, parenting goals. Okay, before, we've been talking for a while now and I've loved chatting with you and hearing all the things that you have to say. What I wanted to say was people who are wanting to make this transition, who have been living with binge eating disorder, compulsive eating, food addiction, what would be some some tips, the three, three biggest tips that you have for people considering this lifestyle or, or wanting to take control of their eating once and for all? Well, the first thing, if someone really believes that he or she is a compulsive overeater, I would strongly encourage looking at Overeaters Anonymous. Um, You can find them online at oa.org. It doesn't cost anything. You know, they pass the hat at the meetings to pay for the room. They also have lots of telephone and online meetings. Um, there's a quiz on their website, you know, are you a compulsive overeater? And that, that can be helpful. And they deal just with the inner part. You know, what you eat is your business. You figure that out with, with your own, you know, physician or dietitian or just with your own good sense. So that would be the first one. The second thing is really to incorporate that day at a time idea This is not about, oh my gosh, I have to lose 20 pounds before the job interview or whatever. No, you just have to not hurt yourself with food from the time you get up today until you go to bed tonight. And if you have done that, you're a success. In the dieting world, people aren't a success until they reach some particular number on a scale. That's not what this is about. This is about treating yourself well with what you eat one day at a time. And the third thing I would say is that you are going to do this perfectly imperfectly. And that is to say, you know, the world is not set up for whole food plant-based. There are going to be times when you are out there and it's just going to be really difficult to eat in the pristine manner, perhaps that you would be eating if you were home in your own kitchen in charge of everything. And so you just do the very best you can and just kind of say, body, you know, this isn't maybe what we would really like, deal with it. And I'm saying, you know, don't eat animal products. Don't eat super duper junk. Don't eat anything that is going to trigger you off on a binge. But, you know, there are just times that it's not going to be perfect because we don't control everything. And just know that that is built into the process and you're going to be just fine. They are so, they are really great tips. I think that for people, I think a lot of people and myself included, you think that once you've been, when you've been on this diet, starvation, binge roller coaster for so many years and you've tried and you've fallen off and tried and fallen off. After a while, your self-esteem is so eroded and you have no faith in yourself that I think that 
for people who are listening to you today and are hearing what you've, how you've overcome this and how you've managed to be um, at your optimal weight for 35 years when so many people, you know, 2% make it past two years, I think that it helps to think about it as day at a time, to think about, you know, let's just make it through today. And that being imperfectly perfect is or perfectly imperfect it's 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 a great it's a great achievable goal for people who have without thinking of it as failing failing and succeeding thinking of it as in you know just just this meal just get through this meal and do the best that you can because you know you're right if they go in if we're out in society there'll be a meal with too much oil there'll be a meal with only white rice available you know there'll be a meal where you it's got too high in salt or it's got some sugar added in a you know you know in a restaurant or what or whatever it is and it's just about making the best choice in that moment i i i, I never choose animal products and i never choose you know non you know, any any non vegan food but i'm and i very rarely choose vegan junk food but you know sometimes you know, you have to forgive yourself for for the food choices you make when there's when you're not prepared or there's just no possibility of getting a low fat whole food plant based food in your area or wherever you are. Yeah, and you know, people will say to me sometimes, "Do you think that the way you eat is the best diet there is?" And I say, "If I could stay home all the time, yes, but I travel a lot. I speak. I'm on the road. I'm in airports, and." You know, it's just never going to be perfect that way. But what really affects the body is what we do over and over and over and over again. So I say I travel a lot. I travel maybe two weekends a month. That means that there are still like 25 days in the month that I'm in charge. And so it, it's just... You keep at it and it becomes normal. It becomes, yeah, this is the way we do things. And you'll just love it. I mean, <laughs> if you haven't done this yet, just it's almost like I think of stepping on a moving walkway, like at an airport. It might not take you all the way to your gate, but it'll get you, you know, pretty far. <laughs> so just, you know, step on, just, you know, see what happens read a lot, find websites, and mostly find other people that are doing this because it can be lonely if you're the only person you know anywhere on the planet. But you can find people ideally in your area and if not online, just so that you know that this is a movement and you're part of it. It's not just you by yourself trying to do something heroic. That is great. I think that's such a good point. And I think it's hard, even for me, I joined Whole Food. We have Whole Food Plant-Based Aussies, a great group started by the wonderful Jenny Cameron and Deb Plowman here in Australia. And it's, it's a wonderful group, but I never even think to ask in the group who is in my actual town because it makes a difference. You know, I know lots of vegans that live out in the East where I live, but Whole food, plant-based vegans is a different thing again. And it would be lovely to catch up with ones that just live in maybe my town and just go for a walk and have a picnic and those types of things. It makes a big difference when you have community. Huge difference. And I think that's one of the great gifts of the internet and why veganism is growing so rapidly right now is that we're no longer just little islands 
trying to do this wonderful ethical thing. We're, you know, we, we're a serious movement. And I do think that there is a threat to our continued growth if we splinter off into denominations. And I think it's so important that people who are not particularly interested in the health embrace the whole food plant-based people because one study at least in the United States showed that 50% of the people who don't eat animal products are doing it for their health. So, you know, the ethical vegans, you know, I mean, I'm an ethical vegan and I'm a health vegan. It's, it's, you know, it's so weird. I mean, I did it originally for ethics, but what it's done for my health has just been amazing. And so I, I think we need to embrace one another and, and the whole food plant-based people, you know, we need to just get it that when we go to a veg fest, there's going to be a lot of food we don't want to eat, but they're going to be great lectures and we'll go to that and we'll meet our friends and, you know, it's all good because we're not big enough to divide up and, um, conquer. You know, because <laughs> we, we won't conquer. No, That's we won't. The thing. No. And there's a lot to conquer. I mean, we didn't talk about the environment in this conversation, but, you know, t- time, time is wasting. And so, and we really don't have the time to spare. So I think if we can just work together, you know, and everybody gets a little bit of the other. That's what's so cool about the whole vegan thing to me, because both the health and the animal part were easy for me from the beginning, because I wanted both of those things in my life. The environmental, I just didn't get. It just, I would look outside and the environment looked fine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what's yeah, the yeah. problem? And, and so, you know, I have to work more. You know, I'm not zero waste, but the fact that my fellow vegans are reminding me that I ought to be, that's good. I'm glad they do. I agree. I want to be more and more, but it's so, the environment was my, I watched Cowspiracy when I, that, that was how I learned about the environmental impact of animal agriculture and, you know, each, it, it grows and grows. As you learn more, you get better. I get better and better at minimizing my, my plastic waste and my waste and thinking more about how I tread on the planet. And it's great, but I was definitely, I was a health, health, I went plant-based first and then I became an ethical vegan af- and afterwards. And now the environmental stuff is just an added awesome bonus. Yeah, it's, it's a it's so powerful. And I think that's one of the frustrations for all of us, whichever of the trifecta we are most interested in, is why isn't the whole world saying, oh my gosh, let's do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's because, unlike you know any other sort of cause, if you say to somebody, well, how do you feel about human trafficking? Oh my God, it's horrible. You know, I'm totally against it. You know, I'll make donations to somebody who's working on human trafficking. Just tell me where to do it. You know, how do you feel about, you know, whatever crime in the streets, blah, blah, blah. It's terrible. It's awful. What can I do? But then you say, and what about animal cruelty? And what about people dying too soon of heart disease and diabetes and that kinds of things? Well, that's terrible. That's awful. Oh, well you can change how you eat. 
uh-uh, <laughs> not going to do that. So we have a little bit more um, of a job to do. Yeah, there's lots of, uh, I don't know who was on the show who was talking about how they say it's easier to commit people to change religion than it is to change the way that they eat. I can't remember who yeah, that was. Yeah, I, I think it was originally that maybe Rachel Carson of, mm. of Silent Spring had, mm. had said that. Yeah. yeah, because it's so ingrained. You know, mm. we start eating way before we're verbal, and it, it's all tied in with mom and tradition. Identity. And <laughs> all that stuff. Mm. And yet, you know, even, I mean, certainly in the vegan world, and, you know, they've done so much amazing you know, work with getting products that seem very much like animal products. Mm. But I think in the whole foods, plant-based world too, we can come up with things that have that kind of density. And I think that's really what most of our food cravings are about. It's like we want density tied with a memory. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can figure out how to do that and with all the cookbooks and all the recipes online, it shouldn't be difficult at all to kind of satisfy that emotional part and you know, and then when, of course, you're getting all the nutrients, then your body is not going to be looking for what's missing. So I can remember times that I would just stand in front of an open refrigerator, just looking up and down and right and left, just trying to find what was missing. And you know, I just didn't see it because I think, you know, what's missing, depending on the person and the time Sometimes it's a nutrient and sometimes it's one of these kind of life hacks, just knowing, well, maybe I do need to learn how to meditate. Well, maybe I do need to, you know, get out in nature more and feed my soul that way. And when you're open to these things, and I think that eating these natural foods kind of helps with that too. It changes what you want. Like I see on your Skype picture, it, it's you with a lovely green juice, or maybe it's a green smoothie. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I think it's, it's a green, green juice. <laughs> yeah. And I have found that if I'm kind of wanting a caffeine or something that I'd rather not indulge in, particularly late in the afternoon, if I'll just have a green juice instead with full permission, if you still want the coffee after that, you know, it exists in the world, you can have it. But the green juice changes what I want. It's kind of like it changes you at a cellular level. So find what does that for you and make this an adventure. You can't do it wrong. Thank you so much. Now, Victoria, before you head off, I just wanted to for you to let people know how they can find you, where they can find you. I, now, I've done it at the start in the pre-interview, but, yeah, if you could please tell us all where we can find more of you or learn more about you or read your books or those kinds of things that, that would be awesome. Oh, that's very kind. Well, my website is MainStreetVegan.net, and everything is there. I do a podcast, as as do you. Mine is called Main Street Vegan, and you can just Google Main Street Vegan podcast. We're broadcast over Unity Online Radio, so we're live on Wednesday afternoons in the U.S., and, of course, a podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. After that, we have six years of amazing archives. 
Um, Main Street Vegan Academy is a six-day program in New York City for people who are already vegan to be trained and certified as vegan lifestyle coaches and educators, and that information is on the website. And I'm Main Street Vegan on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you. Wow, thank you so much. That is awesome. I can't wait to – I haven't actually listened to your podcast before, so we both have to listen to each other's. <laughs> we do. We do. Well, that's not hard to do, and it yeah. always gives my dog much longer walks. <laughs> that's my <laughs> favorite like, time to walk, to listen yeah. to Yeah. I say, well, no, we have to stay out longer because the podcast isn't over yet. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria, and thank you all for listening. I really loved speaking to Victoria and and hearing everything that she has to say because she's a wealth of not only whole food, plant-based living knowledge, but also about, you know, veganism for the animals, veganism for the planet. I love how she speaks about it and is so knowledgeable in all areas. Um, I was so grateful to have her on the show and don't forget you can find her over at MainStreetVegan.net and MainStreetVegan on social media, Facebook, um, Instagram, all those places. And she's also on Main Street Vegan podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, app for Android. And she's has the Main Street Vegan Academy where she trains vegan lifestyle coaches. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, you can follow me. Well, you can subscribe I put out new episodes every Sunday slash Monday. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, which which was iTunes. On iPhone, you can find it at Stitcher app for Android phones. You can also find the first 22 episodes. Well, there might be more now, but at the time of recording, there was 22 episodes over at YouTube, the first 22. But I'm trickling them out as we go, so there could be more at the time of, of your listening to this. And you can also follow the One Life Gives You Lemons Facebook page, Go Vegan Facebook page, where I put out the latest episodes, updates, exciting guest news, all that kind of thing over there. And if you haven't yet and you could take the time to leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and a kind review, or even if you wanted to go to you know, support over at YouTube and give the page or the episodes a thumbs up or a comment or whatever. It all helps those episodes and these stories, these amazing stories of hope to reach more and more people. Your support helps so much in getting this information out there to people. So if you could please, you know, comment, share, share on social media. It helps so much when, you know, when there's support for the podcast as far as getting the podcast out to more people. So thank you so much for your support, those people who have left ratings and reviews at Stitcher or iTunes or wherever on social media or shared it on social media. I'm so very, very grateful. You know, this podcast is for everyone's family and friends and for everyone who's living with chronic disease or who's living um, in a healthy body or whatever. It's for It's for everyone. I really want as many people as possible to know about, at least know about the possibility of a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet being able to prevent and in many cases reverse chronic disease. So thank you all for listening and I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Bye. 